Welcome to the New Age Sage Podcast, where you come to free your mind from all the things that keep you in suffering. Today's guest is Josh Draper. He is a musician and sound healer. We get into the healing powers of frequencies. You're going to love it. Please like and subscribe. Thank you so much. Josh, welcome on the show, man. So, Lucas, good to see you again, brother. Good to see you too, man. So, one of the times I, when I first met you, you told me one thing that really stood out to me, and I always think about it. When I asked about your, your dreads, and I was like, do you ever get shit or hate for them? And you were like, man, these dreads show me who my people are. Because whoever judges me for it, doesn't like me for them, they're not my person. And I always, I since that moment, I use that analogy for almost every quality of mine. Mm-hmm. If a quality of mine pushes someone away, I'm like, not my person. Mm-hmm. So how is that? philosophy worked out for you with with the, with the dress and all that absolutely yeah it's polarizing in that sense but that's okay you know there's an old term called like a canary in the coal mine that the coal miners used to use they would literally take a real canary down into the coal mine and they would set it up when they're working with natural gas if you ever hit natural gas you can't see it but the bird in the cage would like die it would, and that would be the signal for all the coal miners to like leave the cave because they knew natural gas was spreading. It's how it was their signal to get out of there. And for me, this is kind of like my canary in the coal mine. It's like if somebody is put off by that, they're like, hey, we'd love to work with you, but can you do something with your hair? That's my sign to be like, cool, we're not supposed to work together. Yeah. Because it's just not. Has that, has that way of viewing things transcended to like personal qualities? Like personal qualities of yours, or values, or, or ways of viewing the world? Is it the same thing that someone can't accept? personality or a viewpoint that's the same kind of philosophy that they're not right for me. Like I couldn't, I can't be doing this. Yeah. It's more about like just being really clear with who you are and what you're about. And I think, you know, part of that is knowing what you say yes to, but also being clear about what you say no to the universe responds to clarity. So if you're clear about what is a yes for you and clear about what is a no for you, you'll get, It actually helps the universe work faster for you to find where you want to land, ultimately. And, um, yeah, it's like whoever, whatever you really think on the inside, like you're really your deepest sort of inner truth. There's probably a person or probably a group of people, a community somewhere in the world that's on that wavelength already. is already living like that, sharing the values that you have. And somewhere in the world like they're living just the way you want to live right now so when you're clear about what that is and you just like no like cool that's not that group or that's not the people for sure it just helps you get to where you really want to be faster yeah in in that process though finding those people finding that thing it can get lonely because you know and you feel that the people are out there the things are out there but you can't see them what was that journey like for you how did you cultivate faith that they did exist and opportunities for you did exist, even though everything in front of you was not showing that. Mm-hmm. That's a great question. Hmm. You know, there's little breadcrumbs. There's breadcrumbs in, in things you see in the culture, people you might meet in, in different places, and then your sort of internal breadcrumbs ultimately. Yeah. Like you definitely want to operate inside out. And... Um, same way, like, music has been such a big thing for me. So, like, I remember I used to hear an Alicia Keys song when I was in high school. And I didn't really, like, believe in love. 
you know, I didn't have good examples of love in my immediate life, but I would hear Alicia Keys sing about love. And I would think, man, if it's half as good as she makes it sound, then I'm going to keep, keep an eye out for it and like keep looking for it. And like, I didn't know Alicia or, you know, it was just like a message from somewhere that kept the belief going, kept the fire going, you know? Um, and then the other thing is just try, try a bunch of stuff. Try a bunch of stuff. Um, the best way to get to identify the stuff you really like and are going to fill you up the most is finding probably the stuff you don't want to do. Yeah. Sometimes. Yeah. So give me, take me through a journey of some of those bunch of stuff that got you to where you are now. What were the biggest career moments or opportunities you took that got you to where you are now? Maybe things that you thought you needed and then didn't work out or yeah. What's the story of you getting to where you are now? Lots of, lots of turns left and right. Um, yeah, I initially, you know, was like everybody didn't really know. I had lots of passions, but didn't know like what I was going to land on. I went to college to be in advertising. I wanted to write funny commercials. Mm -hmm. was like my dream. Um, my dad and I used to laugh at these old Budweiser commercials and something about that experience of like laughing with my dad was like a keystone for me. I was like, oh, I want to do that professionally, I think, is make funny things for commercials that me and my dad laughed at. But in that process, I realized I didn't actually want to make ads. I actually just wanted to be funny. Mm. And so I cut out the fat. It's like, I don't want to do the ad part. I don't want to sell anything other than myself. I just want to sell my thoughts. So then I started doing comedy, stand-up comedy. Um, and I had some success pretty early on. I was like a 22, 23-year-old here in Austin. And I I took a break from college and started doing stand-up. I went to L.A. And next thing I know, I went back to school and changed my major to theater. Because I, I got some good advice. They were like, if you want to do this for real, you want to make people laugh, learn how to write, learn how to act. And then you're your own self-sustained creative unit. So that makes sense. So now I'm going to finish school. I was like six months away from graduating with an advertising mm. degree and made a hard pivot into theater, despite the fact that I had never done theater before. And of course, it, you know, family doesn't love that. You know, it's like a scary family's like, you want to do what? Mm. I'm the first person in my family to get a full degree from college. Oh. And I was six months away from getting like a normal job in advertising. And pivoted at the last minute to go into theater, which is question yeah. mark. My family can't identify with that. Yeah. Um, and that was like a serious thing, you know. But what pushed you in that moment? Because I have a similar experience, you know, um, kind of opposite where I come from kind of like an overachieving family. And, you know, I went to one of the best schools, degree in politics. And I was like meant to go on this route of matrix success. Mm. And I was like, I want to be, you know, a self-help writer and podcaster mm -hmm. and all my friends were in finance consulting mm -hmm. lawyers all that kind of stuff everyone was like you're, you're out of your fucking mind no way no way no way no way mm -hmm. but something in me pushed me and i'm curious to hear what you're in you in that moment with your family and people questioning you what drove you to your dream mm -hmm. what drove you to say i can't do this shit i have to do this no matter what people in my ear are telling me mm -hmm. yeah it was absolutely just like um joy like at the at the core of it, it was just more enjoyable. I enjoyed that challenge more. Um, I enjoyed the reward of performing comedy more than I did writing ads. It was really just like 
acknowledging what was real for my body. It's like, this feels better than that. It feels like more fun. It feels more challenging, feels more rewarding. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was so clear. And um, there's a great story about Jim Carrey. I was a really big Jim Carrey fan growing up. And he f- sort of famously, his family was in a wreck and he was living out of this van for part of his life. And he always said that his dad was um, the funniest person he ever knew. But his dad had a cor- like a really corporate sales job and he kept doing it over and over again. And basically his whole f- childhood was was sort of in shambles because his dad kept getting fired from these corporate jobs. And I think the line is something like, um, I saw my dad fail over and over at something he didn't want to do. And so I said, well, if I'm going to fail, it's going to be at something I actually do want to do. And that really struck me. It's like, well, anybody, you can fail at anything at any time. I'm going to do it on my terms. I'm going to do it doing something that I want to do. Yeah, fair enough. I respect it. I almost think when I before I do something, I don't know how, how you feel about this or react to this, what you think about it. I kind of think I either want this to be the biggest success or bomb. That's the risk I want to take. Mm-hmm. Like I want to be, make this so original and so out there and just go fully for it mm-hmm. that I can't settle for either bombing or this going crazy. You mm-hmm. know, when I, when I see art, like some shows, they get terrible reviews, and but I see that they, they gave it their all. They really fucking went for it. I respect it because mm-hmm. that could be, you know, uh, an amazing thing. So you have that kind of same mentality of like, this is either going to be amazing or bomb, but I don't give a fuck. I have to do it. I have to follow this. Yeah, that's a great lens to have through it. And uh, they say in comedy, like, if um, if people are just sort of lukewarm about your material, then you're probably not very good. Yeah. And, um, you know, if people have a strong opinion about your material, that means you're actually really doing good work. You're really pushing, pushing the envelope with what you want to talk about. And, you know, you're getting a response out of people. And also in comedy, they say the only way to grow is to fail. It's, did you, did you bomb, on, bomb on stage sometimes? Quite. Yeah. It's, it's <laughs> How was that? Yeah. You know. How that feel? What'd that do for you? Like good and bad? Yeah. You, you are repping this muscle of um, resiliency and fearlessness and, you know, when you bomb on stage and nobody laughs, it's striking, you know, it's yeah. a striking silence. And, you know, you want to, it makes you want to try better. It makes you want to think harder. It makes you want to like, why did, you know, there's this whole psychological aspect about comedy. It's like, why didn't they laugh at that? I laughed at that. And it just makes you double down, work harder. And, um, you know, failure in comedy, there's no, you know, um, you know, there's no one way to be a comedian. You know, yes, a hundred comedians, how they did it, you'll get 99 different answers. And so that you, you know, you learn by doing failure is the only teacher. Mm-hmm. You know, and so you just go do it. Yeah. Figure it out. Yeah. It's one of the kind of cheat codes I've seen people who are mostly happy, but also successful that they've kind of become immune to the negative reaction internally of failure and, and fucking up and rejection. Mm-hmm. The people I see who succeed just are shamelessly asking for things and making requests and getting no, mostly no's and they just don't care. Are you at that space now where you just, you just don't really care if you hear no or get rejected because of that experience in, in comedy or improv? That's a great, that's a great point. Yeah. Comedy in itself is like exposure therapy for that kind yeah. of rejection. Yeah. You feel it all the time. And in fact, your fellow comics, <laughs> are the people that are going to 
roast you the most. Yeah. And that actually is sort of part of the brotherhood of comedians is like everybody's trashing everybody, but the result of that is you're like bulletproof. Yeah. And you get really strong about delivering your messages. And even if it didn't hit, it's like, ah, I can work on that and I can figure it out. Yeah. Why do you think so many comedians are depressed and struggle with mental mental health issues? Mm, that's a great question. Um, and you know, this ties into what you're doing here with your podcast, I think. Um, I believe comedy at, as its core is a coping mechanism. It's a human coping mechanism. And it's what we organically do with dense vibrational frequencies like anger, fear, mm. and sadness. And what we're doing is we're literally transmuting it where instead of holding onto it, you're letting it go through a lighter, less dense frequency and literally transmuting into something that can support and heal the community. Now, a lot of comedians understand that alchemy, but they believe that their success is tied to their sadness. And the only way they can generate material is to remain wounded. Why does that wounding help generate material? Um, it gives you something to rant about. Make you, fun of yourself more and stuff like that. Mm-hmm, talk about. Yeah. Is you material. It's a place to draw from. Yeah. But I think it's one of the core wounds of comedy is that it's so tied to that. And people, the industry itself is tied, is tied into your sadness is your success. Yeah. It's, it's crazy because you can, you know, I can talk about trauma while I can, but I can't make as much of a difference than a comedian. I think comedians are the greatest healers because you take like frequency wise, if you put someone in a, you know, big center comedian show, say a Dave Chappelle show and there's 10,000 people there and they're all laughing hysterically. That collective healing power is monumental. If you have 10,000 people laughing at a high rate together that, that combined, you can't be at a comedy show or, or that and still feel down. It's pretty hard to kind of get mm-hmm. that levity, which is why it's so interesting and, and, and fucked up and strange that the people doing that are in so much pain. Mm-hmm. It's this weird dichotomy. It is, and it comes from them lifting themselves up. It's a very personal experience. It's like, ah, I'm aware of all this. It's sort of like a voice for the community, too. A lot of times, your best jokes as a comic will be like when you're one step ahead of the audience and you're saying something that everybody's thinking or feeling, but nobody really has the words or the platform to say it. Yeah. And that becomes, oh, I was thinking that, too. I also think it taps into, no more about about this than me, but when I see successful comedy, it's a comment on things that we're ashamed about you know things that we're like we can't speak or ashamed of and that shame is so tight in us and so mm-hmm. like um causing f- issues in our system that when it it's tied to laughter it's like this huge release You're like oh i can finally not hold on to that that shame absolutely the release of the tension the release of the tightness the contraction laughter is like ha 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 using your breath your vibroacoustic column to like literally shake that Another thing that's great about laughter that's so amazing to me, and it's really what what pulled me into comedy as a phenomenon. We know so little about laughter. Yeah. We know so little about what comedy really is. Yeah. Laughter is involuntary, like breathing. Laughter is involuntary, like breathing. We don't know what it's, it just happens to us. All of a sudden, laughter is coming out. We don't have to try it. It's so interesting. We also know that laughter is communal. And that when something funny happens, one of the first things you do, like if you watch a movie and you see like, ah, you turn to the person next to you and you want to share it. Yeah. Um, 
it's a really interesting it's a phenomenon i don't think we really understand it no and it makes a huge difference like um and I, I try and you know if i do watch tv i make sure it's something that makes you laugh i notice that it's crazy i mean it's like and i watch tv had its own issues and, and stigmas but if i spend you know half an hour a day laughing just by watching comedy or something i can notice myself happier it's a weird thing that just it's definitely tied to it. i notice the people that are the happiest are almost always laughing mm-hmm. and you'll sleep great that night too yeah for sure so take me back to your journey so you're Comedy improv, what was next? What was the journey away from that? Or what was the next evolution of, of Josh? Man, I got into improvisation at the same time I was doing stand-up. And improv was this whole other thing. Stand-up is very delivered and controlled, mostly. The environment is not controlled. There's a lot of them and one of you. And there's a whole power dynamic in that experience. But improv is like really just throwing it against the wall. And I found a lot of freedom inside of improvisation um and there's a lot of um uh, you know there's a really serious story that happened doing non-comedic improvisation a, a group of like tribal storytelling where you take a somebody from the community you have them tell a story and then you improvise their story in front of them for them and it's like a trauma release technique a way to like witness your story and have other people sort of understand your pain mm-hmm and it's really potent and i got it's called playback theater and it, i learned it here in austin through daniel maldonado with the mankind project and it it shook me up in a way that i wasn't expecting like living other people's stories can you give an example of that like how how, how that would actually go about yeah like let's say i came came to you in the improv group and i was like you know my dad would call me XYZ names and that fucked me up in these, these ways. What would you then do with that? Yeah. In playback theater, we'd say, okay, there'd be like, a, you'd sit in this chair and the storyteller would be like, okay, there's a back line of actors, improvisers. And I would say, okay, Lucas, I need you to pick someone in our act cast to play you in this story. Does anybody here energetically resonate with you? And you look in the cast and you pick somebody that felt you, you feel like me. Great. Is there somebody that feels like your dad in this cast? And you'd go and be like, uh, you, you feel like my dad. Okay, great. We've heard your story. Um, action. And then these people would come up and they would start recreating your story in improvisation terms. And then the people that didn't get selected in the story get to play like the auxiliary emotions and, and forces of the story, like mm-hmm. love or fear or sunshine or whatever it is. Um, and then we're just going to recreate that story in a way that validates your experience so that you can not only witness your story outside of yourself, but also be shown that people who don't know you, who maybe don't know your story, somehow, somehow have this energetic awareness to understand that feeling and reflect it for you. And now all of a sudden this like personal wound doesn't feel like my personal wound. It actually feels like oh, we all have these wounds and it's not really mine. It's actually something that makes me closer to the community. How did you know how to do my story? If you didn't, if you weren't in my story, you must've been through something too. Yeah. Yeah. You saw the efficacy of it worked well. You saw people come out of that feeling like something let go. Big time. Wow. Big time. Wow. And it woke me up. It made me feel in a way that I hadn't felt in a long time. 
Yeah. I was pretty calculated, cold, scientific, atheist guy for yeah. teenage years. So was I. Yeah. 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 But it makes sense because the some of the most I didn't do improv, but some of the most impactful trauma releases for me, I've done all the fucking you know, it's like Doug Breathwork, all that, all that shit. Mm-hmm. But what really moved the needle for me was um, turning my traumatic situations, things that were repressed and shameful, and I wrote them into like short fiction stories. Mm. Like from this other perspective, it just for some reason that I never, you explain it now, helps me now realize why, but that had a massive shift. Like when I wrote it on paper, I wrote my experience down in like a fictional way. I could see the protagonist, which is me, with more compassion. I lost a shame. I was like, oh, fuck, man. You really went through that. It's all good. You know, mm-hmm. it, it gives that, I think it just gives that compassion mm-hmm. that, that we can't really see when it's stuck in, in hate and, and shame. Mm-hmm. You know? That's a great word. It's like, it's a, there's a feeling of stuckness. When things are all internal, it's just sort of like a swirling thing and it can swirl for quite some time. There's practices where you like, any stuck feelings, when you move them to completion, they sort of find a way to resolve themselves. Yeah. And they're no longer inside you either, you know, even just putting it on paper. It's like now it's outside of you and you can witness it. And there's a sense of completeness to it. It's not just swirling energy. You put it somewhere and now it can rest. In your journey, what were some internal woundings or, or stuckness that you've had the hardest time to let go of? Um, you know, I'm I'm reflecting on this one pretty lately, like. When I was a teenager, my mom divorced my dad mm-hmm. in a in a way that was kind of shocking for me as a young kid. And I didn't I had a grudge against my my own mom for a long time, like nine years. I didn't really trust. Why was it shocking? Uh, I was very unexpected. Mm-hmm. I was like thirteen, fourteen, and my mom woke me up on the side of my bed. My dad had gone away on a business trip, and my mom's like, "Hey, good morning." Pack all your stuff. A moving truck is coming in an hour. I'm leaving your father. You had no idea. You had no suspicion, nothing. No idea. Wow. Yeah. And it really broke my dad's heart. He came home with his kids and his stuff was gone. And I, I held a grudge against my mom for a while. Like I didn't, I didn't use the word love for a long time because I thought I had seen people um, not use it in a way with integrity. And I didn't trust the word love. I didn't trust the phenomenon. Like I said, Alicia Keys was the only thing I was like anchored to with the word love. I didn't trust the phenomenon, to be honest with you. And what did he, what made you not trust? You think just seeing what it can cause and the damage it can cause to, to people and you? Absolutely. Seeing the damage it caused to my dad and seeing the way people use it to bypass accountability. Mm-hmm. And you know, I think there's a lot in our broader culture that can make people, you know, afraid of love and afraid to trust other people or maybe even trust themselves yeah. in that, that, that level. Um, and, you know, I, I worked on it and eventually you have to like, you have to have to understand it, love, you have to have skin in the game. And so eventually it was like too long had gone by and I, tried like really deliberately like i'm gonna try this love thing when it was after improv too like i said improv actually like shook me in that way that made me feel love again how old were you when you finally felt like i'm ready for love man i was probably like 22 okay yeah what was the first experience like when you just kind of let go (laughs) hmm 
yeah, you know, it was very sweet. It was very sweet for me. And um, the, the, the result of it was that I didn't really, I, you know, I just, I wanted to use the word. I didn't really know what I meant really. And love is such a effervescent word. Like, yeah, for sure. You know, one thing I, I, I orient around is like when two people say love to each other, what are you really saying? Just because you say love and I say love doesn't actually mean we're saying the same thing at all. We're talking about the same type of behavior or the same level of commitment. But you can say love and I can say love and we walk away thinking we said love. Yeah. And we're together. But in reality, you guys could be miles apart. That, that exact line of thinking is what I've dedicated most of my time to trying to trying to figure out. Mm. It's so interesting. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think about it? I think that on one level, um, I was talking to my producer about this yesterday, but on one level, the definition of love just, you know, linguistically is unconditional, right? Like just the base definition of it is accepting you for all that you are in the moment. I think when you feel the most love, it's in a tiny moment where everything they are is okay. And that's why you can see when someone's their best behavior or, you know, relationships where, where it's kind of like someone's more bipolar in a way. We all have two sides, but when we feel a heightened love, it's like they're who exactly who we need them to be. In that moment, we're, we're just like an acceptance of who they are. I think it's just like an acceptance of what is. My heart is most awakened when I've taken, you know, psychedelics or done breath work. I'm just fully in surrender and acceptance of what is. Mm-hmm. I have no desire to change anything. That's mm-hmm. love to me. But that we can't experience that. 99% of the time in humanity, right? There's moments of that in, in relationships and it's amazing. So that, that, that can be a kind of compass to return to, but in reality, I think love is just what we, we love the way we were loved as kids. That's just the reality. That's the reality. That's what we learn, right? Mm-hmm. If my mom loved me, my mom loved me through distance. I didn't really saw her. She came every now and then and gave me heightened ways of love. So unconsciously, I could only love a woman if she showed me glimpses of attention because I, I, that's what I knew love was. So I got into relationships where that was love. I thought it was love. I was, I'm so in love. Mm-hmm. My friends were aware, were like, dude, she's being terrible to you. And I was like, what? I love her so much. And then thankfully through realizing, oh, that was a pattern. Mm-hmm. So I think that that's what I see love to be, is we're all just going through what we think is love at that moment based on past wounding. And the journey to love is basically undoing all that damage. And in that dance with, with relationships, mm-hmm. we can do that work of seeing, okay, you're bearing out this pattern in me. It's causing this trauma. How can I, how can I heal it through this mirror? Mm-hmm. And that's love to me. Love is that process. Actually, if I can define it more appropriately beyond the actual like real definition. It's just that is the experience of mirroring wounding and unifying to heal. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, that's a huge part of it. And to me, what you said, like this feeling of love and acceptance, everything to me, there's like, even there, there's a couple degrees. Cause I, I think that people can use that as a platitude for, to avoid accountability in yeah. a partnership. Like there's one, there's love. Like I have love for you. I have love for the world. I have love for all people. And then it's like, I'm in love with you, yeah. which I think comes with an extra degree of responsibility to show up for those things like you're talking about, these co-mirroring situations where we're untangling the domestication of our energetic experience. Um, And I think that does come with a layer of responsibility and an extra degree of focus and commitment. You know, the one thing comedy has taught me is the power of commitment. Because let me tell you, when you try to deliver a joke and you're not really committed to it, it won't work. And if you're trying to have this co-mirrored experience in a partnership, 
But one person is like, I have love for you. And the other person's like, no, I'm in love with you. If those people aren't, you know, that's that love thing. If people aren't on the same degree of love, then that co-mirror experience ain't, ain't going to work out, I think. Yeah. Yeah. What were situations where you were in that dance didn't work out for you? Where there was like, you know, for me, it was the end of my last relationship was this. We had a good mirroring, but I think whenever there's any argument in a relationship, no matter who's at fault, you both have to have homework. Like if if I if I'm in this dance, I cause some part of it. Even if it's mostly them, I did it. So every, that was my agenda. Whatever argument we have, we both have homework, no matter what. Just so it's fair, and we both have something to do. What ended mine was I was doing my homework and getting an A plus. She kept <laughs> handing her homework late or not doing it and getting an F. And that was that's what happened. Like I kept improving this shit, and it was like she just didn't do it. She never wanted to show up to class and do do her homework, so <laughs> it didn't work out. I'm curious what your experience was in that kind of dance that didn't for past relationships that didn't work out yeah. i love that analogy because <laughs> i feel that sincerely as well there's um you know like i said that the extra degree of like i'm not have love for you i'm in love with you there's a degree of responsibility that comes along with that and there's a degree of willpower that's needed for that degree of commitment and so you can find out if you're with somebody if that willpower to show up for those moments is real or not. Because ultimately, like you said, if that's the measurement of connection, real deep connection, and they don't have the willpower to participate in it, then what love are they actually speaking when they say love to you? Um, And furthermore, to that point, it's like um, relationships on that level, right? There's, I have love for you, but this intimate thing, there's, there's a reason that there's an extra degree of responsibility for that. And that's because your guys are attempting, the, the goal is to ultimately bring life into this world, bring a, a smaller um, human into this world who'd be absorbing all the things you guys are dealing with and talked about. And if you guys can't show each other responsibility for each other, then how are you guys going to trust each other to have responsibility for the life of this third entity that you guys try yeah. to bring into it? And so the practice of this co-mirroring, the willpower and the responsibility it takes is a precursor to the responsibility you guys will be as partners and the responsibility you will hold for this extra life, this third life you guys are trying to bring in. So that that dance, that conversation is practice. You're practicing responsibility with each other in this really intimate, connected way. And if people don't have the willpower or are afraid to show up in that place, then they're not ready for that extra responsibility. And if that's where you're headed, that's something to look for, I think. Yeah, it's crazy. You ever think about, to me, it's crazy that most relationships, I don't mean this on a high horse egoistically, but most relationships have no idea about this. Mm. They just they just exist without ever dealing with these issues. Mm. I think about it. I'm just like, how, how does it happen? I think I, I look at there are couples that don't even know about this stuff. They're happy and doing well, mm-hmm. and there are others that are just ma- massively miserable. Mm-hmm. I look at the same as people who are just unconscious that they have no idea what's going on with awareness. The same with the relationships. I look at them and just like how how do this work? How can you just never address anything? Or when they do address it, just not address it and argue all the time. Like most relationships are just walking messes you know i'm pretty intuitive i go to a restaurant let's say a fancy restaurant i can look around the room and i can feel almost every couple is fucking miserable <laughs> it's just true because we have no idea what we're doing because like, back to our point we don't know what love is mm. and we can if we can't do that work of, of, of honestly addressing that we're just we're perpetuating our wounding you know I, I think we also have this ability to reflect 
each other's in- incapacity for intimacy. Mm-hmm. I see that too. That when we're in relationships, we're just getting to know someone in, in, in initial stages. We kind of show each other how ready we are for intimacy mm-hmm. in some way. Mm-hmm. It's just, and we have no idea about this stuff. You know? mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's strange. It's strange and it's, it's sort of ephemeral in nature. It's like, it's a phenomenon. I, I resort to this word a lot because it's a real thing. Whether you're studying quantum physics or you're studying phenomena like laughter or love, there's this idea of phenomena. It's like, even at the deepest level, we're all trying to make sense of being plopped into this world of opposing forces and, you know, oh, we're all, everything you ever know is going to die. Great. What a weird experience this is. How do we figure it out? Yeah. And there's some, there's some gifts, you know, like, you know, this is sort of a tangent, but, you know, the attempt to learn about love sometimes can get in the way of experiencing love. Yeah, for sure. Like the mentality, the linear mind, like trying to understand it. And some people who just like do it without talking about it, they have a a natural sense for it, you know? Good answer. Um, And some people who are trying really hard to understand it linearly, are, are blocking themselves from feeling it and they can talk at you got you know you can talk at somebody you ever been in a part or a moment in a relationship where it's like you guys maybe are locked into this conversation back and forth across the room across the table from each other and on some level you're getting this signal it's like our hearts need to talk I actually need to like hold you and our hearts need to do the nonverbal energetic communication to and that's actually the conversation that needs to happen it's not this at all yeah You've been there? Of course. Yeah. Almost. I think there's a, one of the most popular or effective relationship books I read. It's called Hold Me Tight. And the whole 300-page book, PhD, person, psychology, it was just that. It was that when we're actually, you know, yelling at someone or angry at someone, it's just our, you know, inner child usually needing safety and intimacy. Mm-hmm. And that it doesn't know better than to just yell. And that's his way of asking for love and attention. So when you just hold each other for, you know, a certain amount of time, it's effective and it's even even if you have to figure something out if you need a solution wise it actually requires analytical thinking you can it's, it gets into your heart that you won't think about it so much from the eye you like go with the third entity you'll go I think when you connect you're kind of tapping into that third entity of the we in the relationship and you can go about addressing things in that in, in that manner um, but to your point I think what I realized recently is that you know I spent years of my life philosophically trying to figure out how to be happy you know, and how to love and all these things. Like, and it helped me analyzing it and reading all these books and, and philosophical books and Jungian psychology, all that stuff. But then I had a point a couple months ago where I was like, fuck, I'm just thinking about it. I'm not actually in the, in the war zone. Mm-hmm. I'm not trying to be present or, or trying to be happy, literally, you know, somatically or, or love. I'm just thinking about how to do it. Mm-hmm. So throw all the books away. Fuck it. I gotta, I gotta just be this shit, mm-hmm. you know? So did you have a similar experience? Cause you're a smart guy too. Did you, have a time where you're just educating yourself on various things and realizing, fuck, this doesn't, doesn't matter. I actually have to just become it in reality. I have to be it and practice the actual sensation and stuff. Yeah. Embodiment is sort of like, is, is sort of my power word for this year is like embodiment. And I find that I kind of go through pretty natural phases and I, it's actually helped me a lot to orient around like sort of the give and take of that experience where it's like, I'll go through a phase where I'll just read a lot. And I'll be absorbing a lot of information and they'll be like, cool. And then that will sort of, I'll get filled up by that experience. And then it's like integrating, embodying that for some period of time. And I won't, I won't ingest or digest a lot of things in media or culture or, or read a ton of stuff. 
Um, and then ultimately that you'll run into a wall. You have to expand and grow and the things you learned at that point will ha they have a finite applicability as you evolve. Mm -hmm. And so then there'll be a new phase where I'll be learning, reading, studying. And maybe there's a better way to integrate that. But I also find that like that works for me. Like thinking about it in phases. But it makes sense. Like, you know, I have uh, my notes. I get, I call them codes. Whenever I get like a universal quote or like a belief that helps me move the needle, I write it down on my phone. Mm -hmm. But now I have like a hundred of them mm -hmm. and I, I can't remember them. So I feel like it's more effective of me just to write down one, like one new code and then really just be with it for a week or two mm -hmm. weeks, download it. Cause there's difference of like having it here and actually, as you said, downloading it into the body. That's a software update. That's the actual getting into the system is, is the update. Mm -hmm. So what you're doing is correct in my eyes. Mm -hmm. I try to get cocky and get like 20 at once. I write 20 out of a piece of paper. I look at it every morning and try to memorize it. But you can't really download it until you, you know, take time for the software to, to, to integrate. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I find that as I've gotten older, my sort of codes have, have shrunken quite a bit. They, I used to, especially as a comedian, write everything down, everything. And there's a philosophy in writing or in comedy um, there's a great book by Rudolf Steiner. You, you know Rudolf Steiner at all? Of course, all? yeah. Yeah. Um, OG. OG, dude. I love him so much. He's got this great book called Intuitive Thinking as Spiritual Thought. And basically he's saying your, your thoughts are gold and what you think matters. And the idea is to build this inertia that what your intuitions matter and write everything down. You witness it. You give it love. And over time, you build this positive inertia and you have better thoughts and you believe in yourself more. And you're just like channeling this wisdom. Um, and, for, you know, it, it, that's what, essentially what comedy is as if you're writing comedy, right? You're having a private improv session with yourself and you're generating thoughts and building this inertia. Um, yeah. So as I've gotten older, my messages to myself have shrunk. There used to be a lot of specifics. And now I just like a word and it'll last for a while. And the word right now is embodiment. And it's like, cool, all this stuff that was in my head and in my heart, it's time to live as that for a period of time. So you said earlier that there's now few codes you live by. What are some codes you live by now? What are the main values that you've kind of shrunk down or summarized into some key tenets for your life? Hey there. I'm going to give you a break to digest all of this amazing information. And in this break, if you like what you're listening to, please rate and review the podcast. Thank you. What I mean by that, what are like your, some of your go-to, like when things are, are, everyone has their things that when you're facing the fire, when you're facing adversity, when you're facing moments of, you know, shadow integration or downness or, you know, self-deprecating uh, thoughts of uh, patterns of consciousness, what do you go back to? to return to high vibration. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like the first two things that stand out are like, um, touch, like literally touching the earth. Um, uh, there's this, um, I've just started this awareness of this new Andean, um, energy principles from this culture, the Quero culture in Peru. Uh, they work with, they say there's two types of energy in the world. Sami, which is light, effervescent um, energy that's all over the, the earth and it's provided by the earth and it's endless. And then there's called, like, it's called huacho. Um, I'm going to butcher that. <laughs> but it's like, it's this dense energy that can only be created between human beings. Mm. 
And basically the practice is when two human beings cultivate this dense energy, you guys walk away and you go back to the earth and you ground through this energy practice. You send that low frequency, dense frequency, back into the earth through the tips of your feet, literally back into earth from where the energy came from. And the earth eats it and creates more Sami energy. And when you remove that low energy, put it back into the earth, the Sami floods into your body light energy and fills you back up with lightness clearness and then you guys can come back to your conversation or your misunderstanding without that dense cultivated thing that happened you guys come back to it clear and light and so i go to the earth touch the earth with my feet with any issue you have like when you have dense energy you feel in yourself you kind of give it to the earth yeah definitely especially heart stuff Mm -hmm. relationship stuff relationships of stuff between people definitely you're pissed at someone or someone wronged you or you feel some kind of heaviness to them. So what's that process look like? Give me an example of something recently where it's like, give me your process, the Josh process of doing that practice. Man. In in detail. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) My practice in detail. So like going through um, like a a sudden deep breakup. Mm -hmm. It's like, okay. Um. The first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to be proactive about grieving because as a man in our culture, I think the first mistake we do is we lock it in and we build a wall behind it. And that is not only the biggest mistake, it's often the very first mistake we make um, is not letting the energy move through your body. And so, and I had to learn that the hard way. Um, about grieving, like doing plant medicines and stuff really taught me how to grieve and the importance of grieving. And so these days I'm really proactive about it. Something bad happens that makes me feel bad. Man, I'm like, cool, I'm going to cry about it like tonight, big. I'm just going to like let my body get ahead of the emotional purge so that I, I don't have to like have it in the background for weeks. Before you continue, what does that look like when you like actually grieve? <sighs> yeah, you know, it's like, Closing my eyes, trying to just make myself present for the body. It's very much in the body. And a lot of that emotion is led by the body. So we try not to control it, really. It's getting out of the way and letting the body sort of do a very natural emotional purging process. It's going to clean tension and contractions yeah, in your heart. happened to me. My last relationship ended about six months ago, three years. Um, I thought I was getting ahead of it, but I had a, I had a dream that like she, my ex died. Mm-hmm. I woke up and my body was just like... Burr. For two, an hour and a half straight, I was like wailing, like a like a wolf mother lost her child, like literally like screaming. I couldn't help it. But then the next day, I was I felt so much so much clearer mm-hmm. that my that you know, it was just that like my psyche had to get to a place where I could allow myself through all the pain in my body to release. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. and some of that pain isn't always yours. Like if you're really connected to somebody. You might wake up one day sad and you're like, why am I sad? Like, it could be your partner is like going through it that day, your ex partner, and you guys are still like, the threads are still, you know? And so it's nonlinear and you'll have days um, where it's easier and harder until you find a place to set your feet down, you know? Um, Another big thing for me, as maybe it's getting more complicated, is like, uh, I like to play music. Um, I taught myself the piano at 29. And, you know, off YouTube, but it's been a great place. Like if I have 
a confused emotion. So I have a degree in theater, it turns out. Weird how it happened, but I do. And they teach you in, in acting school, there's only four emotions. They only teach you four emotions in acting school. Happiness, sadness, anger, and confusion. Confusion is its own distinct emotional state. And this, anyway, every other emotion will be iterations or degrees of those four core emotions. Confusion is still the one that I haven't, I haven't mastered. Other ones I think I'm good at, but confusion still fucks me hard. That's the <laughs> one. It's it's It can be worse than sad. And in fact, when a relationship's ending, a lot of the things that affects me the most is the confusion part. Yeah. I can grieve. I learned how to grieve. Thank you. But confusion is so overwhelming and that can be more scary. Yeah, because for me, it's like I end up questioning divinity. That's the thing for me. I think if you're questioning confused, like part of you is questioning the the reality of divinity of like i think divinity is what is and, and the intelligence of what is mm. and when i'm confused i look into it, it's like i'm not in acceptance with the higher intelligence like it's like my, my body can't accept what is mm. it's like it's like it's like this anger at, at god or something that i've had to i've slowly tapped into I'm like oh fuck you know yeah i mean that's brilliant that's exactly what it is it is like and that that quite that the way you show up in that moment like asking Trust me, asking for acknowledgement, asking for clarity is actually how you get attention. Yeah. Is actually how the world will respond to you. Um, and even if you're like, I hate this, again, clarity is responsiveness. The universe responds to yeah, that's, clarity. Some of the times I've had the biggest needles is when I've, I get like every night, like once every couple of weeks, I have a temper tantrum and <laughs> just I feel like fucking pissed off. And when I repress it and like get mad at myself for it, but I think it's actually, I realize it's a signal for me to the universe that I just can't accept what's going on anymore. I can't fuck with it anymore. Mm -hmm. Like I just, I'm, I can't continue this way of living anymore. Mm -hmm. I need help. Mm -hmm. I need help and support in cultivating a new life. Mm -hmm. My ego can perceive it to be a certain way of, of that I want it to be, but regardless, I just need someone to shift, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think that's great. I think anger is totally fine. People get angry and there's so much shame around anger these days, especially for men. It's like a part of the experience and anger is there to do a lot of things. A lot of times to defend yourself and it's this wounded inner child. Like when the anger yelling comes out, it's like trying to protect something yeah. with deep within you. Yeah. Let's go back to the process. Yeah. So you were for the, what the name of it, but the spiritual earth practice. So you, in recent exp uh, example, okay, you got to the grieving. Mm-hmm. You did that in your own time. What was next? Yeah. Proactive grieving. And then um, to, to get to work with the confusion, right? Sadness helps. So I grieve. You're sad. So I grieve. Be proactive about it. Then the next part is confusion, which can be worse than the sadness. And for me personally, um, I go do a few things for confusion. One is I play piano. I sit. I just bring my emotion to the piano with no intention other than to... Um, just sort of experience what's present. And what's amazing in that experience, as somebody who doesn't really, I wasn't classically taught piano, is I just allow my hands to wander the keys, the black and the white keys, which are uh, in a lot of ways, the yin and the yang, mm -hmm. the happiness and the, the melancholy, and allow my hands to wander through these notes. And when you, you start to blend, there's these bridge notes where the white and the black keys like to talk to each other, because generally they don't, they're their own things. But there's these bridge notes where the black and the white keys can talk to each other. And what it feels like when you play them is like these really sophisticated emotional states that are like happiness with a glimpse of tragedy, 
or something, you know, and that's how the end of a relationship feels mm -hmm. sometimes. And so by literally just allowing my hands to play these sophisticated notes, I actually will land on a chord that feels like how I'm feeling. And it's a weird way to associate the feeling with a linear understanding without needing, needing it to be a name or without a person needing to tell me advice. I literally just sit in the resonance of that chord that feels like how I was feeling. And then suddenly I feel less confused about it. I begin to understand like, oh, it's this weird um, ingredients of like um, joyful memories with like tragic moments. And it just feels like this chord. And that actually helps with the confusion. It like moves it off of my heart. Why do you think? Because you can really recognize what it is you're feeling. Taps you into the sensation that you kind of can't make sense out of. Yeah. I really sit with it. Like I will sit with the chord. I'll just play the chord and allow my literally harmonize with it, like my resonance. I will resonate with that chord. And by, again, witnessing it, sitting with it, it like releases it. So fascinating, man, because using that way of thinking, I think when I'm sad, and a lot of people are sad, I'll like go to a playlist mm -hmm. and I'll try and like find the song mm -hmm. that'll bring out what I'm feeling. Yeah. You know, and it's just the same kind of concept. I never understood why. Maybe you can go into more why you think it is the case. But why for me, why for most people? does that happen like why when i'm going through a, a sad playlist one song hits and then it just makes me make sense of exactly how i feel mm -hmm. why do you think that is yeah that's so interesting and i, I want we all do it we actually all do it yours is way more artistic and specific but we all do the same thing yeah well i had a weird kind of walk up to that and i'm curious like when you were growing up you know some music on the radio is like these sad songs what was you did you listen to sad songs growing up did you understand them my dad only listened to sad music. He loved like um, borderline emo, like indie music. Love Radiohead. Love Radiohead. I love Radiohead too, but just kind of music with melancholy. So I always, I grew up with it all the time. Mm -hmm. So I did. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I could feel it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I like didn't understand sad music. I didn't understand it, but I could feel it. I could feel the energy. Yeah. I didn't understand it at all, but I could feel it. Mm -hmm. I could look at my dad and feel like oh, he's feeling something, you know, mm -hmm. with the music. Yeah. I went through this experience for until i was like 22 and i like had this awakening moment with improvisation i would not listen to sad music i couldn't understand why people would waste their time yeah. listening to sadness i was like put a happy song on yeah let's dance to a song and i would like literally if i was in a car with somebody skip over the sad songs like why are we why do we want to listen to a sad song listen to the happy song and i didn't i really didn't get sad music until i went through my first breakup and you know, 22, challenging myself to love and like really wanting to get there. And on the way out, we were experiencing this confusion on the way out of the partnership. But like, oh, this is ending. This is weird and confusing. I don't, I don't really know how to understand what I'm feeling. And the, we couldn't talk to each other because it got so tight. And the way we started communicating in that moment was we would send each other a song. I can't explain how I'm feeling to you, but this song explains it. Mm -hmm. And she would send me a sad song. And I would hear it. And for the first time, I like, it hit me. I was like, oh, this music is like a time capsule in a way. It's a time capsule for an emotional state that this person went through. And it's, it's exactly where I'm at now. And it's like a place in time, space, space time that somebody wrote and, and created a memory in space time. And by you sort of walking through it with your consciousness, it like clarifies Oh, 
this isn't an, a unique experience for me. This is actually an experience that we have as people and no longer feels like this personal mm -hmm. thing. It feels like, oh, I'm actually part of the human experience. This actually makes me more human. Yeah. By like hearing that other people have felt that feeling. Yeah. Do you think there's any part frequency wise where the song could maybe match a frequency? You don't know how to feel like, I just want to really, cause it's fascinating. I just can't figure out. That's one point piece. I think it's one part of the puzzle that makes sense is, is kind of losing the shame and feeling like it's all part of us. So why else do you think that listening to one song could make sense of everything we're feeling? Mm -hmm. Is there anything, any other ideas you have or ways of thinking about it that you think could match it? It's just a fascinating thing that I never thought about, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned the frequency thing and there's a lot baked into it. Like I said, if you look at a, the keys in the piano, you've got your major and your minor, your sort of happy wholeness and your melancholy moods and you know anybody can sit at a piano and you can feel the difference between the black keys and the white keys they feel different like the reason the blues are written on the black keys generally is because they feel blue yeah. you know and there is an emotional resonance to all all frequencies and um yeah i definitely think that and in, in songs there's music is layered with truth. So not only the frequency of the music, but the frequency of the person that's delivering the message. If that's right, and the music is right, and those are, are, are lined up, it's undeniable, man. It goes right through whatever shield you got up, any sort of energetic barrier, gonna hit you. What, what do you think it is about Bob Marley or something like that, that whenever I listen to or anyone listens to, one of his, you know, cheerful songs that it kind of will eradicate everything going on. Have you ever thought about that? Why do you think his music specifically does such a good job of clearing all that, all that heavy stuff? Well, I have a lot to say about reggae music, you know. Mm -hmm. Reggae music is, in a lot of ways, the antithesis of all the other music we listen to. Everything's on the downbeat, but reggae music's on the upbeat. It's literally uplifting you. It's a spiritual, I believe reggae music is a spiritual vehicle designed to pull you up, uplift you. From all the other music, we just downbeat, downbeat, four to the floor, downbeat. Reggae is upbeat, upbeat. Mm -hmm. And it there's codes in your body. Like music, you know, as somebody who plays drums, like different rhythms make you move differently. There's this term in Latin music called clave. If you're familiar with clave. Heard it, I forgot what it meant, but I, I, I took some music classes in college. That's one thing, yeah, clave. Clave literally means the key or the code. And they find out when you when you do like a binary rhythm with a triplet rhythm, it, it just makes your body move. Like you're, you don't, you can't understand why it's happening. There's there's these math, it's like a math to it, energetic math behind it. And yeah, when you get the right math and a piece of music or a sound of vibration, that's what you're calling for, your body's looking for. So I feel like you can you know more about reggae that you could add here. Like what about reggae itself beyond the like uplifting? Why is it so special? Yeah, man. Reggae is a, a spiritual vehicle. It is uh, designed to be uplifting. It's on the upbeats. Um, you know, it's often also like sort of coded. There's a patois. It's sort of hidden. It's a lot of metaphors. The same way like any religious text is written in allegories and metaphors. Um, 
And yeah, reggae as a music is just like it's meant to be the 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 opposite side of the yin and yang to like all the other music. And it stands out that way. And it when you feel it, it pulls you differently than other music does. Yeah. Yeah. On the op- on the flip side of that, on the darker side, it can listen something like like hard rap music with the with the kind of eighty way is eighty way where it's like yeah. When I listen to hardcore, you know, drill rap or stuff like that, I like it mo- certain times if I'm pissed off or I'm working working out. But I just, how do you feel about that? Like, like the, a generation of people, kids listening to music with that like super low bass, eight away, and also like the messaging about you know murder and you know stuff about kind of like godless activities. Mm-hmm. How do you feel about that? How do you what do you think the effect that ha- that has in society is? Yeah, there's two parts that stand out. One is like the message, and the other one is like the, the frequency you're referring to these 808 drums. Uh, I personally like I can't really listen to, especially modern rap hip hop music. It just seems like the message. Really, it's the messaging that seems bad, bad programming to me. Yeah. Um. You know, but I love rhyming. Rhyming and flows are all great, yeah. but the message has to be. You know, something that's not oppressive and ultimately destructive. Otherwise, I think it's bad programming. Um, which is another reason I love reggae music, because it's usually about lifting up, letting go. Reggae music is, is a lot of times, you, you see it, it's the music of the oppressed also. Because before you see reggae music, you see punk music. The pre- pre- predecessor to reggae was actually punk music and you see it in places like england and you'd see it in places like northern ireland these places that had like very oppressed people and out of punk the first reggae music came from punk bands and if you listen to like system of a down system of a down has reggae parts in their music um and i really i think it's the music of the oppressed people are trying to overcome an oppression uplift themselves out of this darkness you know yeah um and then like the frequency of the music, I think people get that all twisted. Yeah. This concept of high and low frequency as like it being a good or a bad thing. I think people have that twisted. Um, high and low frequency, you know, so frequency is measured in Hertz. Hertz is a measurement of oscillations or rotations per time period. Higher or lower refers to the numbers, the numerical value of the frequencies that we're giving, but doesn't really mean anything about the frequency itself. There are low frequencies, like delta wave frequencies, which are super healing and restorative. Those are some of the lowest frequencies we can hear audibly. Super healing and restorative. And there's super dense high frequencies like fear that are super high and rapid oscillating frequencies. And I think people get really tripped up on this higher or lower frequency thing. Those are actually referring to numerical values. Frequency is really measured in density or oscillations. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I have a lot of respect for low vibrational frequencies like 808s and stuff. That stuff will vibrate you in great ways. But Paired with the messaging. Right. But with that vibration, as it opens you up, low vibration will open you up to more responsiveness. But you want to make sure what you're opening yourself up to is good messaging. You're not dumping a bunch of bad messages into your open vessel. Yeah. Generally. And what other ways do you think we have to be sensitive to programming? 
I think music's one way, right? Like, you know, being careful of that. Who thinks about it that way, right? That the 808 frequency of a rap song could open you up and it delivers, you know, like angry, um, oppressive, murderous lyrics and you just you download it. Mm-hmm. What other what other pieces of societal program do you think come up in ways that we don't realize that we have to be careful for, that you're careful for to not kind of download? Yeah, I mean, the one that always catches me is the most uh, obtuse is like ads and commercials. Yeah. As somebody who used to work in ads and commercials, it's like, that's a big psychological game. Pharma ads, you know, stuff like that. Pharma ads. They're crazy, bro. Like I look at pharma ad, you look, it's always this. It's it's people playing in a field, like laughing happy. Like I had this one issue and I took this pill and everything's fine. And it's like this, this daisy thing. And just and then the end it with like a, like a billion side effects. You're just like what? Mm-hmm. And people you don't you forget about the side effects because you saw this person finally living a happy free life with this pill. Mm-hmm. You're just like crazy man, right? Yeah. And it just looks way too happy, like yeah. absurdly happy, like unrealistically happy. Or you see an ad for a car commercial, and it'll be like a guy driving a car, and somebody will drive by with a nicer car, and that guy will be like, oh damn and like the family would be in the car and the family would be like what's going on dad you didn't get the good car and the guy will be like in shame and like the cool car drives by and it's like oh you're using shame to motivate people to buy new things um and that whole sort of mechanism of like consume like you know prey on your weakness so that you'll consume more stuff is why i don't do advertising anymore but you see that all over the place it's a big underlying part yeah. of culture it can never go away as long as we live in a capitalist society it's like if we have to feed ourselves make money then we have to manipulate people to buy product buy product products mm-hmm. that's a sad reality and mm-hmm. it'll never change well you, only thing you can change is you know maybe what you do what i try and do is try and catch the programming like whenever i look at something it's not like what is it it's like what is this trying to make me believe or feel that's where I look at news, Smart. news headlines, mm-hmm. advertisements. I'm like, what are you trying to make me feel and think mm-hmm. to either make me walk, keep watching or buy this or believe this? You know, you're right on about that. There's definitely a big TV show, big reality show going on and we're in it and all that stuff. I used to work in TV as well, producers and stuff. All Everything's a big TV show. Everything you see is, you know, even reality TV is super scripted and, you know. It's all a TV show. And, you know, you said you have back, you know, some background in politics and studying politics. It's like a great way to like get the dust off of the messaging you're getting is like stay in touch with what's happening in the courts. And because everything that's happening in the courts, the media is going to go report on that. And it's like if you're watching what's happening in the courts and then the media reports on what's happening in the courts, you can tell right away. If they're being real or not, objective. Yeah. yeah. So the news is, no matter what side it's on, it's they're subjectively reacting to objective data yeah. to put a spin on it, to instill fear of the other side, to get more views. That's it. <laughs> that's that's the formula, and every every one of them, as you said, like it's, but it, it's almost impossible. Not impossible. It's hard to be objective because you have to go to the source and research. Mm-hmm. It saves so much time just to read a fucking editorial headline and be like, oh, you know what? It's okay. But then we're just downloading bullshit all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Smoking mirrors. Big time smoking mirrors. Yeah. So I want to do a little bit of a, a, a 180 and go back to some of the frequencies. Just because it's something I, I try and be educated on a lot of things. And one thing I'm really lacking in that I haven't studied really 
I focus mostly on psychology and psychoanalysis and that kind of stuff. But one thing I don't know a lot about that I want to learn more about is the healing of frequencies. Mm-hmm. Like it kind of got into it a little bit, but I'm really curious about it. Just I don't know about it. How do frequencies heal us? I know you work with the company Opus, uh, Opus Two, and like, how does what's the future of that? Like, why do frequencies heal us? I think it has to do with water or something like that. And so, why do they heal us? How can we use how can we use that to heal us? And what should we be doing to to capitalize off of that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, frequencies. Obviously, there's so much mystery and phenomena to them within themselves, and there's a lot of science also within them to themselves. Um. You know, and the best sort of example I can give is like a cat. You know, if a cat wounds itself, a muscle or a tendon or a bone, a bone, um, a cat can purr on itself and it, it enhances and increases the healing faculties of its own body wow. by creating resonance, amplifying, um, a resonance within the body. Um, and, a lot of what we do at Opus is called vibroacoustic therapy. And I think healing is subjective, but there's a range of frequencies and some are specific um, harmonics that are based off mathematics. Um, the best way to sort of find these harmonics are, are doing things like cymatics or these experiments with sand, where you can place sand on a, sand on a tray and get like a frequency dial and as you go up the frequency dial, it looks like chaos, 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 until you get to like a popular one is 432 hertz. And as soon as you click from 430 to 432 hertz, the sand makes this perfect geometrical shape, perfect geometrical shape. It just vibrates into this perfect resonance. And we know that that happens with, with water or sand. And our body is made up of what, 70 to 80% water, whatever it is these days, depending on who you're talking to. Um, and so the theory is by projecting these frequencies into your body, you're creating a resonance of more clarity, perfection, structure, and just improved amplified resonance within your body, right? Um, you know, all your cells come to alertness and they can talk to each other. And maybe there's parts of your body that have been disconnected because they, they're not getting attention or resonance and you're like sending, amplifying that resonance into them. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lot of it is subjective. Like w- w- 432 hertz might be for somebody, like 431, 427 might be for somebody else. I don't think it's as um, like super strict and defined as culture makes it seem. I think it's a lot more subjective to like the individual's. Um, but ultimately what you're doing is you, you're, you're using frequencies to activate your vibroacoustic chamber, which is this, uh, place of resonance from your hips that comes up into your chest and into your nose, even into your nasal cavities. These are the places that resonate when you sing or you speak. That's your whole resonant cavity. And by activating that cavity it brings presence into your body and it grounds you down and there's a lot of old theories about this with like vowel sounds like um in central and south america some cultures didn't use vowel sounds unless you were in the church they were called sacred sounds the vowel sounds they're the resonant sounds and i think it's not a coincidence that every religion 
you go find has a practice of like singing and worship because you're resonating. And when you resonate, you feel closer to God. And I don't think it's coincidence that when you do vibroacoustic therapy or you do sound bed, you hear music that speaks to you. When you resonate, you feel clarity. That is that the actual tool you're working with and all that is your vibroacoustic column, your vibroacoustic chamber. Mm-hmm. And activating it, when it's dormant, when we're sitting here, it's like, okay, it's there. But even when you go do breath work a little bit, even when you sit and meditate intentionally and breathe intentionally, there's a provided sense of clarity to that. It's like that resonant chamber in your body is a tool that you can work with. So if you have stuck energy or shame or loaded anxiety or fear, some kind of momentary trauma in your system, how can that be cleared with, with something like that? Like what's, how does that work? Yeah. I mean, I, you know, sing, resonate, hum, tone, om, om. That stuff is actually really, really great for grounding your energy. Really, really great. I'm also asking why, like how does that like, how and why does that happen? Like how through doing that or, you know, cat purring, like what exactly does it about resonance and frequency and getting ourselves that aligned that way? How does that help us clear things? Yeah. Energy energy gets compacted and stuck and over time it gets dormant. You know, if you're not, Mm. if you're not addressing and working, it just gets farther and deeper and stuck. And so, you know, you, you know, you loosen it up the same way you might loosen up a jar, you know, and say, hey, this jar got stuck. I haven't used this jar for a while. This pickles or something and it got stuck. Well, shake it, you know, vibrate it. Like you're loosening it, loosening it up so it's easier to that makes sense. pull out, yeah. you know. Makes sense. How, how do you use in your own process? Take me to your own journey of how you use frequencies or sound beyond the piano, but like when you're actually feeling something, how do you use it or you learn to use it to help yourself? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, sometimes like we feel energy that feels, um, like overwhelming, like you feel overstimulated. That is my go-to sign. If I, if you have the awareness to recognize I am overstimulated in this moment, uh, I will go sing a song. I'll walk to a corner and I'll sing a song to myself. I'll sit at the piano and sing a song. If I can't drumming, like, drumming is a phenomenal way like like i have a spear drum i have a djembe it's like the actually the origin of resonance is the drum so boom boom. even just hitting a drum once next to you boom will actually send a wave of looseness through your body and that's what shamanic drumming is is when you drum between four to six beats per second you can induce the transcendental state of consciousness and then you let the vibration, boom, 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 boom. And it's clearing, loosening, clearing, loosening, clearing, loosening. You know, you're out of your mind, not thinking about it, but clearing, loosening, just with the resonance. How do you recognize overstimulation yourself? I think we're always, all of us, especially with social media and being on our phones and never having space outside of simulation. So help people how can they recognize overstimulation how do you recognize when you're overstimulated overstimulated what's the key you know stimulus or example you feel in yourself that tells you i'm overstimulated that we should catch on to in ourselves yeah that's a great question um 
I feel like high heart. I feel, I feel energy high in my heart, like not like here, but like sort of high in my chest, mm-hmm. high in my heart. It feels like rapid energy, not like slow. It feels like rapid. I feel like I'm not really clear, you know, like there's something in my body that's keeping me from like seeing past my nose. I'm just sort of like, yeah, yeah. there's something sort of here. Contraction. Yeah. And I want it to like release and let go as I can ground. And so, you know, just like comedy, something happens in the room, you have to talk about it or otherwise people, they won't ever hear the next joke. You know, something happens in a room, you try to just walk, you know, move on by it. They'll never hear the next joke. So when something's happening in your body, you got to look at it. You have to address it. Stop and address it. I think what's tricky about overstimulation, in my experience is that you just keep wanting more of it. Like when I'm in that state of overstimulation, mm, something in me just keeps wanting more. Like I don't want to escape it. I want to keep being in a heightened state. Of like I'll be on my phone and scrolling. I'll be fucking in that state. Like I just, I, I want to stay in it for some reason. I want to stay stuck in it. Um, but now I've gone to this place and hearing you say this sparsely to me that, that nothing good comes out of it. So like, does it, unless I'm like in danger mode or a hat, like some d- big deadline, but if I have time, nothing good comes out of it. Nothing good. How do you, do you feel like what I'm saying? Like it takes a, when you're in that state, you just want to do more. So how do you pull, how do you, what are you using yourself or intuitively to tell yourself to pull yourself out and be like, my ego and mind may want to keep staying in this state, but I can't do it. I got to pull away. Yeah. You just touched on something that's really, really sincere for people. And I think especially for men, because that feeling does feed off of itself. Yeah. It like eats and feeds off of that. It wants more. And I think part of why it feeds off of itself is, is based on, for men at least, this dormant feeling of like warrior energy that we're all like built into our DNA. It's like us as men, we're the survivors of like all the people that survived, the people that were the best warriors and that fought the hardest. We're the, you know, the people that couldn't fight, they didn't make it. Mm-hmm. The people that are left here today are the people that were from the best warriors, the best survivors. So we have this DNA, thousands and thousands of years of D, like warrior DNA in us that mo- mostly our culture is so full of convenience and posturing that like it's sort of just in the background. And then there's these little moments where we get stirred up enough and it, you know, that feeling, high chest feeling is a fight or flight response. And that fight comes out and you've got thousands of years of dormant warrior energy that wants to play. Dude, he's like, I want to be a warrior. What are we fighting? Let's go. And your body gets turned on as a man. So how do you as a man in this modern day society control and guide that fire that is built in? Um, and feeds off itself once it gets activated, right? How do you step out of it or how do you work with it in a, in a healthy way? Super big yeah. stuff. Never thought about it that way. But it makes sense. Yeah. And your way of doing that is, is just going to music. Yeah. Music helps. Sports working out. And does that help too? Or big time. Yeah. Using it. Try to find good ways to use it. Um, one thing I've been orient- orienting around like that fire is like, what's the difference between passion and compassion? Because a lot of times that fire comes out as passion. And passion sounds like, I really want to do this at all, at all odds. Like, I'm doing this at all against all odds. And compassion says, like, 
I really want to do this and I care about you in that process. And passion can burn the house down. Compassion uses that fire with an acknowledgement that there's other people here. Yeah. I think something yeah. I'm working with. So how, how, what's the best way you've noticed to shift yourself from passion to compassion? Just embodiment? Just what are, what are some of the ways you've noticed that, that you've made that shift? Yeah. Allowing, you know, allowing myself to witness the fire as this thing that is real for me and stepping outside of it and saying like, I not saying, not identifying with it. It's not, I'm angry. It's there is anger. Right. It's not, I'm angry because I am not angry. I am human. I am Josh. But in Josh, there is anger. There is fire. Right. So don't identify with it. Yeah. This is the first thing. And then once it's, there is fire and I care about you, but I also have this fire. I'm still working with it, but that's sort of where I'm at. Yeah. Make, makes sense. Well, I wanted to kind of end there. I feel like it's the good place to, to end because it's a powerful notion that, I never thought about the way that our fire is, is designed to, for us to survive. It's designed for us to win wars and advance our, our civilization. And that I think as men, that the more we don't realize that and repress it and deny it, it'll just act through us unconsciously. We'll end up causing damage, working ourselves to death, stressing ourselves out. So we have to kind of, Jordan Peterson quote that always comes to mind to me is that you have to, not the exact words, but it's like you have to kind of realize you have a capacity for danger. And then get get ahead of it mm. and control it. But men who cause damage are the ones who never know it. They mm. never face it. They just repress it. And then they act through them unconsciously. Just become a demon that way. Um, but I want to thank you so much for, for coming on, man. And myself, like I, I do this to learn. And this is one of the biggest ones I've learned from. Because you've covered certain topics that not many people in this space cover or know about. So thank you, man. I really appreciate it. Honored to be here, man. Good to catch up. Where can people find your stuff and learn more about what you what you do? Sure. Check me out on uh, Instagram, True Josh Draper. Uh, check out the company I work for, Opus, at feelopus.com. And uh, I'm around town in Austin. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Please make sure to subscribe to the podcast, as well as rate and review. Thank you for listening.